Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Some people just adore martinis. Others love iced tea. In Venice, they all go for bellinis. But coffee, that's for me. I've tasted every kind of brew at every coffee shop. Some were good and some were great, but this one was the top. There was nothing like the coffee at the automat. Its aroma and its flavor were supreme. Your ears do not From deceive you. That is the gravelly comedic voice of the one and only Mel Brooks. Even though he's in his 90s, he is not only still going strong, it seems like he's more active than ever. And uh, now with uh, Carl Reiner having passed away, it seems like he's doing the work of two. And that is... Uh, one of the terrific songs that you'll hear, pretty much the anthem of uh, the terrific documentary, The Automat, which is a terrific documentary film that I just saw yesterday, and I absolutely love it. Uh, the only people that will love this film more than people who remember The Automat and used to go to The Automat and enjoyed going to The Automat are people who've never been to an automat and will enjoy learning about this fascinating, fascinating window into New York City history, Philadelphia history, and really uh, an incredible part of what made the 20th century so interesting. And I am just thrilled uh, that we have joining us this morning the director and producer of the documentary The Automat, America's original and most beloved restaurant chain in New York City and Philadelphia, the one and only Lisa Hurwitz. Lisa, thanks for joining me on the radio. Thanks, Frank, for this invite. Uh, well, congratulations on the film. I absolutely loved it. As I've told you off air, I, I hope you win every award there is. And uh, this strikes me as such a creative, original idea for a documentary. And before I ask you what, what sparked this idea and how you got involved in the project, it, we have now 30 years worth of living without the automat. There's a generation and a half of people who've been born who don't even remember what it was like to go into an automat. Explain to those folks, explain to people uh, who might not have ever been to New York and Philly, because we do have listeners all over the country, what was the automat? I have to admit, though, and I can do a great job of explaining, but I'm, I fall into this group of people who never got to go to one. But as you'll gather from seeing the film, I am quite enamored by them. And so I, you know, made it my purpose in life for uh, quite a few years to, you know, 
figure out what happened and to tell the story. So an automat, essentially, well, a horn and hard art automat, because they're not synonymous with one another, but at a horn and hard art, you'd go into these large, beautiful spaces in New York City where the walls were lined with what looked like vending machines but were little glass windows where you would put coins in a slot and take the food out and there would be communal seating where people would share tables with one another. There would be steam tables and counters uh, where you would go and change your dollars into nickels. And they were these very idealistic emporiums of food and of uh, space that could be shared by New Yorkers and Philadelphians and the visitors coming to both cities. Well, I, I kind of took a guess that you were not old enough to have ever been uh, to an automat, or you might have been very young when you when you went to one. And that leads me to my first question is, what sparked your interest in this? Why, I know you dedicated the film uh, to some family members of yours that probably did attend the automat regularly, but was that it, a familial uh, uh, loyalty to this restaurant chain, or was it something else? None of my relatives that I'm aware of have ever eaten at the Automat. I discovered the Automat in my college library. I loved eating in my school cafeteria, and I was just on this cafeteria kick, reading about cafeterias, going through old articles, and I came across the Horn and Hard Art Automat. And so it really clicked uh, with me, and I, you know, I just couldn't let go. I just kept running with it. Well, you did just an incredible job. It really is a a wonderful, wonderful film. And I'd like to play a portion of uh, the trailer if folks are unfamiliar with it. This is a portion of the trailer from uh, the documentary film, The Automat. It was right near the theaters and the food was so fresh. From a silver dolphin spout the coffee poured right out. Not to mention, at the end, a little spurt of cream. There was nothing like the coffee at the Automat. I love those little windows that opened, and sometimes what you wanted was missing, and you knocked on the window, wait for the person. <laughs> you have to understand they had no latte grande, no quizzical baristas in your way. Life changes, things change, we all get a little older, but the older you get, the more you reflect back on what came in the beginning, the Horn and Hardest and the Automats of the world. And for just a shiny nickel, your taste buds you could tickle with that wonderful, magnificent, unbelievable, awesome coffee at the Automats. Lisa, first of all, I'm amazed that this is your first film because the production value of this is just extraordinary. I'm also amazed at the caliber of person that you got to be in this. Uh, We just heard Mel Brooks now twice. Uh, You've got Colin Powell, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Elliot Gould, Carl Reiner, an automat historian, a lot of people involved in uh, who had worked at the automat, uh, a lot of people who talk about how the automat really affected them. 
How did you get so many larger-than-life stars, including many that uh, uh, passed away in the last couple of years, how did you get so many to participate in a documentary about a, a restaurant chain? I think it's two things. First is that it was a really important place for a lot of people, and so you know, it wasn't so hard to get them to say yes because they they wanted to preserve the memory and then the second piece is that I'm, you know, I'm persistent and, you know, I'm smart. I was able to find the right people and, you know, make my case and, uh, and then execute. Uh, you, you certainly are, uh, all those things and how. It was interesting to me, and I don't know that I realized this before watching your documentary, that uh, the Automat uh, was only in New York and Philly. If it did so well, particularly in the late 40s, early 50s, in both of those cities, why wasn't it expanded b- into other cities as well, maybe even the suburbs? So they did try to expand to Boston and Chicago in the early 20s, and it was not, it did not go so well. Part of what made them so successful was how developed New York and Philadelphia were. The the volume of stores that they had, it allowed them to have a, you know, a central commissary where they could have really like large volumes of food and they just weren't able to build up the systems and figure it out in those cities. And they decided to just focus on what was, you know, working for them. And I really don't think that there's any shame in, you know, modern business. We're just, we're getting so accustomed to seeing, you know, global companies and nationwide companies. But I, I think it's a really beautiful thing to actually kind of, you know, have your, your zone and to develop your zone and, and leave the the rest to, you know, to everyone else to, you know, focus on, you know, what you do best and leave, leave the rest to other people. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that's one of the things that uh, I, I shake my head at most in 21st century America is that you visit New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Sheboygan, Nebraska, and uh, every place looks the same because they all have a CVS, a Subway sandwich shop. I love the idea of local chains that add to the flavor of uh, a city, and it certainly seems like uh, Horn and Hardart certainly did that. Now, uh, just to get a little clarification for folks uh, and for me on what you alluded to, you mentioned that the Automat and Horn and Hardart were not synonymous. And I learned in your documentary that in Philadelphia, you were more likely to call it, it they were more likely to be called these, these chain restaurants Horn and Hardart. In New York, they were more likely to be called the Automat. Why that difference in, in phraseology? And what actually is the difference between the Automat and Horn and Hardart? Well, the Automat is a concept, and there were other Automats run by other companies in different states and different countries, but Horn and Hardart was the name of the company, and their concept that they popularized was called the Automat. So people all the time tell me, you know, I think I think we had an Automat in, you know, California or, you know, whatever state, and they probably did. But Horn and Hardart, of all the different, you know, chains in the u.s they were the ones that really took off and so that's why it's become a little synonymous but in reality you know it was the horn and hard art 
automat. And so, you know, automat, they don't really own, they don't own that word. Understood. Understood. It's like uh, th- there could be many different types of, uh, of delis, but there's only one Katz's. Exactly. Understood. Uh, if, sure. pe- if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Lisa Hurwitz. She's the director and producer of the documentary The Automat. Uh, you can learn more about it by going to the website automatmovie.com. It's a terrific documentary, and uh, I think it's one of the best ones that I've seen in a long time. And I know. By the way, we open this Friday well, at Film Forum in Greenwich Village. I was just going to ask that. What is the best way uh, for people to see it? Uh, is, is there an on demand viewing option? Like uh, with, with a lot of things now, or is is that the best way to people for people to see it in theaters beginning this Friday? So we're starting with New York and LA. We're opening in New York this Friday and in LA next Friday. And for the for the time being, in those places, uh, you've got to go in person. And it's going to be in New York. It's going to be showing six times a day, at least for a couple of weeks, maybe longer, if you know the demand is there. But uh, we open in at on February 18th at Film Forum in Greenwich Village, and eventually will be available for people to watch from home. We're playing a lot of film festivals all around the country. Some of the film festivals are offering on-demand options where you can either watch it from home or go in person to the festival. But uh, like we were talking about before, about, you know, keeping things local, I really like, you know, before it goes on to, you know, streaming platforms, I like it that we're first giving the film to uh, individual film festivals and letting them bring it to their communities. And then it's going to become uh, very widely available uh, probably in around June. But for now... Uh, automatmovie.com. We've got a screenings page. Yeah, it seems appropriate that uh, a documentary, which is very much a throwback to recent nostalgia, would encourage people to be doing something that's relatively nostalgic these days and go to an actual movie theater to see it. Uh, so I wish you the, the best of luck, and I hope a lot of our listeners will go to the Film Forum and uh, check it out. Now, I know that you uh, have an automat historian in the film, and you speak to a lot of the people that were involved in the Automat company and the children and grandchildren uh, that were involved in Horn and Hard Art. But what is, if you were to put your finger on what made the Automat concept so successful and the Horn and Hard Art spin on the Automat so successful, what would it be? That's such a good question because it's so true and they really, they beat out all of their competitors for the longest time. And as we, you know, touch touch on in the film during the Great Depression, which before the Great Depression, it was just such a thriving time for cafeterias in New York City. And most of them didn't survive the Great Depression. But Horn and Hard Art was such a reliable place for a nice atmosphere, really high quality food, a very welcoming space. And gosh, it was just, it was just such a wonderful place to go. It was, it was like a second home for so many people and you could just really hang out there for as long as you wanted. They were really spacious. They, they were just so good. And I I really think that that's, that's what has to do with why they beat everyone else out. There was just something really, and a lot of people would describe it as, you know, magical, 
about them. And it's kind of hard to put your finger on exactly. But I have, um, you know, people, the, the name Horn and Hardart, the company was purchased and a family does still own it. And they did try to, you know, keep it going and bring it back. And something interesting that they said to me is that you can't compete with people's memories mm. is something that they've learned in the process of trying to, to bring it back. And there was just this specialness about it that, you know, no one else could replicate. And also that was so generational. The automat was passed down uh, by grandparents to, to, to children, to their children. So people just really associate it with, um, you know, loved ones. Uh, there's just so many, so many reasons, but I think it just comes down to, you know, great quality, great price. And then, you know, all these memories that are connected to the place. Mm, yeah. and, and what went wrong for Horn and Hardart? I, I know the last uh, Horn and Hardart Automar, uh, automat closed uh, in 1991. It was just about seven or eight blocks from where I'm sitting right now. How could a franchise that did so well in New York and Philadelphia and meant so much to so many people just uh, go out of business? I mean, it's difficult to imagine a, a, a restaurant like uh, McDonald's or Subway or uh, Dunkin' Donuts going out of business. But if, for a lot of New Yorkers and a lot of Philadelphians, that must have been what it seemed like when the automat went away. I interviewed Howard Schultz for the film as well, who's one of the founders of Starbucks. And something that he said to me that didn't actually make it into the film, but that really stuck with me is that you can't take your success for granted and you've really got to fight for it every single day. And I think that Horn and Hardart started to take it for granted. And I don't think that they were planning far enough out and that they were able to forecast fast food and the, changing eating trends, the changing demographic trends. Horn and Hardart was, you know, depending on a system with a city that was just full of people, but people moved out of the city. They moved to the suburbs after World War II, and they were a system that was built on volume, and they had a really hard time scaling back. So I think that this had a lot to do with it, and then we don't get into it so much in the film. It was you know, we, we we discussed whether we wanted to do it or not, but there was some toxic leadership in the company as well, and the horns and the hard arts were pushed out of the company. But you have to keep in mind that, you know, this was a this was a very family oriented company and that I think business was becoming a lot more complicated and you know, the the world was changing and we were talking about simpler times before and Horn and Hard Art kind of lacked some of the sophistication that I think it would have needed in order to survive in a more cutthroat business landscape. For all the people that you spoke to, the famous and the non-famous alike, what were the common trends of their fondest recollections from the automat, aside from the food? A lot of them uh, go on and on to talk about the quality of the food and how good it was and how inexpensive it was. But beyond the quality of the food and the price, what was it that people really seemed to enjoy about the automat experience? The biggest one that I get has to do with remembering going there. I went there. My mom brought me there. My grandma brought me there. 
I remember going there as a kid and they gave me all these nickels and I could choose what I wanted and I was, you know, free. Uh, these are kind of the the biggest ones, actually. It does seem like uh, at a time when the country was still trying to deal with civil rights and integration and uh, different socioeconomic classes interacting with one another, that this was a place that was totally populist, totally egalitarian before it was fashionable to do so. Well, I will say that New York City and Philadelphia, for the most part, were already pretty integrated. But the automat sort of became like a an emblem to represent what was going on in these cities because it was such a, a major place that everyone went to. So it started to represent something. But for the most, there were some things that were still segregated. But you know, Horn and Harder was just a place that everyone went to and anyone could go to. And as as you will see when you watch the film, the restaurant is sort of a window onto America in the 20th century and the changes that we were going through uh, during that time. And, you know, we see the automat change and we see America change. So... It's it's definitely a when you when we and we do address, you know, diversity and inclusion in the film and we have a diverse cast and they address, you know, what the automat meant for them in terms of inclusivity. And, you know, fortunately, it, it um, we didn't have to force it because it's just the reality of what what the automat was. So. I've always felt that this was an important story to tell. I think that there's some very relevant lessons for us to to not forget. I think that this is a, a beautiful example of an experiment in our society that went incredibly well for a long time. It Almost a, 90 a years, right? Yes. And it was this place of togetherness. It, it was it was innocent. It was it was a private company serving the interests of the public, providing a very useful service, and they still made a profit, uh, but we still got something that we needed. And, you know, people were rubbing elbows with one another. It, it for I recently went to, I was at an airport and I needed to get something to eat and there were no open tables. And I really just needed to, I had to get going. I needed a place to sit down. And it was hard. I had to ask somebody. Somebody had an empty seat who he was a guy sitting at a table. And I, I had to ask him, can I sit across from you? And it was it was hard to do that. It didn't come naturally. But that's in the past. That wouldn't have been awkward. And you wouldn't even had to ask. You could have just sat down. So, you know, I, th- I think there's some. Something you'll see it when you watch the film, but I just think there's some things that we've lost that are you know really healthy and worth bringing back. Absolutely, and you heard Mel Brooks there singing about the the coffee at the automat. That seems to be a common 
trend with people mentioning how great the coffee was. Not only was it a nickel, but uh, it seems like uh, they really enjoyed the dolphin delivery system and the flavor of the coffee itself. In your in your view, obviously you've never tried the coffee, but in your view, is the recollection that people have of how great the coffee was, is that improved through the prism of nostalgia or was this coffee actually that good? Well, coffee in New York City was five cents everywhere for the longest time, and Horn and Hardart kept it at five cents longer than everybody else. But I, I can't say that I think it has to do with the quality of the coffee solely, but I really think that that Italian-inspired dolphin spout that the coffee came out of. And that was another thing when people are telling me about all their favorite memories. It really has to do with, you know, the hot chocolate, the the coffee coming out of these beautiful dolphin spigots. Some people thought were lions, but I think it was a combination of having really good coffee and then just having a beautiful, uh, as Marianne Hardart says in the film, you know, whimsical uh delivery of it. I mean, who would think to serve coffee out of a silver dolphin? What were some of the other favorite memory uh, menu items that people mentioned? Oh gosh. Well, the baked beans, the macaroni and cheese, the the chicken salad sandwich, the the lemon meringue pie, the apple pie, uh, sometimes I, w- I heard it was served with vanilla cream sauce. Hmm. Uh, I've heard all sorts of pies. They had so many kinds of pies. When I interviewed Mel Brooks, he just he went on and on and on about the pies, and we were only able to include a fraction of the pies <laughs> he discussed in the film. But like I, he literally, I think, had every single pie there, and he remembered every single one that and is, uh, told me about it. So that, look for incredible. the you know the DVD extras. <laughs> that's incredible. Trust me. I'm going to try and uh, order my copy in advance. Uh, one of the other things I really enjoyed about your film, and it's one of the things that I had no- noticed about the Automat over the years, was its place in popular culture. It really was a setting in so many dish- different movies, television programs, talk shows, uh, live publicity stunts, even cartoons. And I-, I don't know that I had a full comprehension of the scope with which the idea of the automat permeated popular culture but you had this uh, whole uh, multiple generations of students and uh, children and adults alike all growing up seeing the automat on television hearing about it on radio and it's great that uh, that your film has uh, has sort of kept that tradition alive and uh, i really do hope people check out the film it's going to start at the film forum this friday you can get details by going to automatmovie.com you know by the way i i noticed when i was watching the credits that you thanked a lot of donors for the film was this film crowdfunded is that how it got made it was a crowdfunded film. We had so many supporters. It, it, it's a very grassroots project, and I'm. That's part of why. I think that's part of why it's so great. Um, and a lot of the photos, actually, you know, are crowdsourced uh, as well. I was, you know, running ads on Facebook trying to find people who had had stuff that could be included in the film and. It, it worked. So 
you'll see in the credits also there's a very long list of archival sources, many of which are individual people. Wow. Uh, That is uh, really wild. And uh, it's a phenomenal film. And I think that uh, the way this film was made uh, seems very, very true to the populist tradition of the automat itself. Uh, Hope everybody sees it. Lisa, I want to wish you the best of luck with it. I enjoyed it immensely. Oh, thank you, Frank, so much, really. Thank you. And if you want to call in and comment on your recollection of The Automat, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Again, you can check out the film this Friday at the Film Forum and uh, check out the website, automatmovie.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead.